We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Just a reminder that the Dear Prudence podcast happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash prudipod. Danny Lavery here, and I have a special announcement for our listeners. Some of you know that I published my latest book in February. It's called Something That May Shock or Discredit You, and it's about transition and religion and thinking a lot about Jacob wrestling with an angel. Today, I wanted to let you know that for a limited time only, you can get a really good deal on the audiobook, which is read by me. Go to slate.com slash Danny. That's right. It's just slate.com. Danny, short for me, Danny. There's also a link in the show notes of this episode. The audiobook will cost you just $12.99. That's $5 off the list price, and you will be hard-pressed to find a better deal, at least about memoirs about me. After you complete your purchase, you'll be able to listen to the audiobook in your preferred podcast player, including the one that you're using right now. There's no special app to download and no subscription fees. There's one more thing you should know. The audiobook sale is brought to you by Slate. That means your purchase not only supports me, it also helps support Slate's important journalism that you depend on. So it's a win-win. You save money, and Slate makes money. If you've ever thought about checking out my book, there's never been a better time than now. This is a limited time promotion, so don't just sit there. Go to slate.com slash Danny and buy my audiobook today. One more time, that's slate.com slash Danny. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Austin Channing Brown, an author, speaker, and media producer providing inspired leadership on racial justice in America. She's the New York Times bestselling author of I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, and the executive producer of The Next Question, a web series imagining how expansive racial justice can be. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thank you so much. Uh, just seeing your face is filling me with joy and making me long for the days once again when we could take road trips across Michigan. I know. Someday. Someday we'll get there again. It's going to come. Yeah. It's going to come. How's your Monday going? You know, I have, similarly to you, a, a pretty well-balanced freelance life. And so I typically don't do anything on Mondays that I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and talking with you is like the best Monday thing I could ever do. Yes. 
Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, that's extremely, extremely delightful. And I love that I am the thing you wanted to do today. As always, that makes me feel good about myself. (laughs) And it makes me think I need to start restructuring my Mondays so that I'm only doing everything that I want to do. I mean, when you have a real job, your Monday is treated just like your Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. People just are very insensitive to the fact that you are just coming out of a weekend and you might need a second, you know? Yeah. The thing that's hardest for me, the thing that is like currently my Monday is now that I have a tiny dog, whenever I take him out on a walk, I'm the most popular boy in the neighborhood. Everyone's like, who are you? You know, (laughs) trusted courtier who is allowed to parade this dog around. Right. Such that I I got so used to it so fast that like the other day I went out for a walk without him and I was genuinely like, (laughs) I I felt like Ray Liotta at the end of Goodfellas. Like I'm just some (laughs) schmuck. I'm just like people aren't stopping in the middle of their walks to like look at me in delight and shock. Like this sucks. (laughs) I was genuinely hurt. I was like, I'm just a person walking down the street now. So (laughs) you would never just be a person walking down the street to me. Listen, there's a reason that I got the most ridiculous looking dog in the world. And that is because I like attention and I want it. I want it any way I can get it. Not any way, but I definitely never learned the lesson of like bad attention isn't as good as good attention. I'm like, I'll take it. Does it have the word attention on the box? I think puppy love attention is fantastic attention. I think that's entirely appropriate. So good. It's so good. If you would be so good as to read our first letter, I put the two first letters together. I think you will, it will not have escaped you that they very much belong together. Right. I don't know if you picked up on that careful, careful selection. There's a theme happening here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Happy to. Can't pretend to love my kids. Dear Prudence, my wife Eileen is the love of my life. I adore her. I would do anything to make her happy. And that included having two kids. I'm not a good father. I never wanted children, but believed everyone who told me I'd love my own. I do love them, but they exhaust me. I don't and have never enjoyed spending time with them. I've never told Eileen how much I dislike parenthood. And before the quarantine, I could handle spending a few hours at a time with them. But now we're stuck together all the time and my facade is slipping. I snap at my kids. I go on runs to avoid them. And I'm starting to resent them. I know I'm the jerk here. They're just kids. And I'm so disappointed that I can't give them the bare minimum. I sometimes contemplate leaving them, but I still love Eileen so much. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to explain to my kids it's me, not them, without admitting there's a problem. Yeah, so I want to do two things here. The first is um, I want to take the letter writer at his word when he says, I don't love my kids. And the other is I want him to go a little bit easier on himself, which is a little tricky because like part of me reads this and says, gosh, this is just how like any parent would feel about their young kids. Let's leave the door open for saying that maybe you do love them. Um, and, and there's a part of me that really wants to encourage him to reconsider what he calls love for the kids. I want to set that aside just for the moment because um, it's his internal experience and, you know, he, he's allowed to put words to it that make sense to him. Um, but I, I did get the feeling here that he's not mistreating the kids. He's not doing anything unloving exactly. And that like being trapped inside with them 24 hours a day um, is 
like I'd, I'd be going a little nuts too, right? Let me tell you, as the parent of a toddler, it's rough out here. Okay. Or rather in yeah. here. <laughs> it's rough yeah. in here. <laughs> yeah. Like, did you read that and think like, oh, that's a really bad sign? Or do you just read that and think like maybe his expectations of like, do you think that he thinks that love means that you would be thrilled hanging out with two toddlers for 24 hours at a time and you'd never get impatient? Yeah, it it honestly, it made me wish that he would talk to his wife, actually, and and just say to her, parenting is hard and it just got harder. Because mm-hmm. my guess is she's feeling the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of room in between I'm having a really hard time and sometimes I find myself snapping at the kids and I want to talk to you about it rather than go straight into, I actually never wanted them, but I just believed it when other people told me that I would eventually want them. Um, Cause that's maybe a conversation that you want to have first with a therapist um, or <laughs> really, I mean, truly. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I think that you can have a real meaningful conversation with your wife about what's going on without going straight to my terrible, dark, deep secret. Right, right. And I, uh, part of me almost wants to applaud some of the things he's doing. Like he goes on runs when he is feeling super stressed out by them. I think that is entirely appropriate. (laughs) Yeah, I gotta say that would, frankly, that would like have been part of my advice if he said, I don't know what to do. And I'd say, I might've said, go take a walk, but um you say that you're disappointed you can't give your kids the bare minimum. And again, I get that if part of what you're feeling internally is just a sense of, I will do the things I know that they need, but I feel zero love. And if a bus hit them tomorrow, I'd be secretly 100% relieved. Fine. Like, I won't argue with you there by saying like, no, you're demonstrating love. And that's the same thing as love. You're doing great. Um, But I do think he's giving the kids the bare minimum, even if it is all out of obligation and not out of love. I I would be so interested to ask him what a good father is. I mean, there's there's just so much here that I am super curious about. When he says that he dislikes parenthood, I wonder if there are specific things that he dislikes about it. Because when I became a mother, one thing that a lot of people said to me was, it's okay if you don't like, right, like your kids at every single stage right? That there are some parents who do great with the toddler years and there are other parents who do great with teenage years, you know? And so part of me is curious about what age the kids are at and if there will come a time when he feels more connected to them at least um, and to sort of wait, like (laughs) hang in there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wonder that too. So I I think that my advice there would be much along the same, which is Continue to act as lovingly as possible and continue to be open to the possibility that as your kids get older and develop more of their own personalities, you may find yourself liking them more and more and even developing a sense of love. If only the kind of love that, you know, like common law love, like, oh, I'm your common law father. I acted like your dad for long enough that I am. So to think of love as something that you may possibly grow into, that makes a lot of sense to me. But even if it never happens, even if, you know, they turn 30 and you're like, well, I could have easily done without any of that. Um, you still have to raise them. You still have to be there in some form or another. Um, even if you did leave, uh, Eileen would still be entitled to child support from you and you might still be on the hook for visitation. And, um, you might not, you know, want the fallout that would come from your friends and family if you just left and said, I never want to see the kids again. So that's right. Separating from them doesn't mean that you're no longer a parent. Yeah. So 
all of this is just to say a lot of this makes sense to me. A lot of this is not incompatible with love. Um, and yet I also want to remain open to the possibility that you really just don't love them. And that's I don't want to say OK, but uh, I, I do want to say that that doesn't get in the way of your ability to provide them with um, stability and affection and care. And, you know, again, you may very well 15 years from now hear from your kids something like, I kind of always got the feeling that you were just being patient with me through our childhood and it hurt. And, you know, you'll have to cross that bridge when you come to it and figure out how to balance not lying someone, but to someone, but also not necessarily saying like, yep, you're right. I, I waited until you were 25 to tell you, but I never really loved you because I, I, I think that would still be damaging to hear at any age. Um, yeah. So again, all of which is just to say, I, I think talk to a therapist is, is, it should be high on your list. I agree. I completely agree. And, and you know, that can be the person that you can be brutally honest with. You may not be able to start seeing somebody right now in lockdown, but at some point during the rest of your kids growing up years, I think you're going to need to see one to talk to about this and to figure out what version of this can I share with my partner? What version of this can I share with some friends? What kind of help can I reasonably get? And I would be shocked to find that Eileen is baffled, right? If if what he says is true, my guess is Eileen already knows. And so it might be better for this woman that he loves to be open and honest um, as a therapist encourages him. Yeah. Um, and, and it also just, it makes a lot of sense, you know, especially when your kids are quite young, they need you so much. It is exhausting and you have to, everything is urgent. Like you can't tell a, you know, a hungry baby, like fuck off, um, you know, or, or you can do it once, but then in an hour or two, you really have to attend to it. You know, like you, the most you can ever that do is, is not a long-term solution. Yeah. So and that's not just to say, like, of course, you'd be like everyone who has a kid kind of hates their kid. That's a, a state of affairs that we should all consider normal so much as just, um, yeah, a lot of this makes sense. And if you need help not snapping at the kids, talk to your wife about that and ask her, like, have you noticed it? Does it worry you? I would love a little accountability help here. Um, do you recommend that I talk about it with some friends as well and maybe ask them for tips? Like talk to your friends who are parents, talk to your other, especially friends who are fathers um, and ask like, how do you take care of your kids when you don't feel like it? And when you feel frustrated and overwhelmed and like you just want to be alone. And then also look for ways to, you know, keep your runs, make sure Eileen has time to do whatever her equivalent of a run is because she needs this too. And she could be struggling too, you know, that my guess is, is that woo, during quarantine, figuring out meals and cleaning after kids and mm -hmm. keeping them entertained and now with virtual school, you know, I don't know right. what stage the kids are at, but my guess is there are plenty of moments when Eileen would like to just walk out the door. Yeah. And, and then like, I think to the last thing, like, you know, I understand why you're like, I don't want to admit there's a problem because I don't want to say to my kids, I don't really love you. I agree. Don't say that. But that doesn't mean you can't admit that there's a problem because part of the problem is fucking quarantine and how that's been going on since March. Um, I think you should be talking pretty regularly to your kids and pretty openly in age appropriate ways like, hey, we're living under 
unbelievably heightened stress conditions. This is, it is a miracle that we're all still speaking politely to each other, even 50% of the time. Like really do acknowledge that with your kids and let them know we're all under a lot of stress. This is really unusual. I'm, you know, and then if you lose your patience, if you lose your temper, take a minute, calm down and apologize. Um, they don't need you to never lose your temper. They just need to hear from you. I'm sorry. That's right. I, and I love the idea of having a family plan. So here's here's what we're going to do when any of us loses it. <laughs> we're going to mm-hmm. let that person go take a walk or be in their rooms or have a moment to themselves and then we're going to regroup. Um, but why not acknowledge that this is hard for everyone? Yeah. And I think, I don't know if this was the read that you got, Austin, but my read was here that like part of what he feels is because I don't have this internal condition of love towards the kids, what I owe them instead is like the best simulacrum of parenthood that I can come up with. And that's how I will make up for it when I I think that's overreacting too much. And I think it would be a lot easier for your kids if you just acknowledge, I'm not a perfect parent. Right. I'm going to lose my temper. I'm going to speak sharply. And when that happens, I don't want to act so shocked and horrified by it that I just never acknowledge it because that won't do them any good. I just want to react in a way that's like, yeah, I'm your dad and I'm also a human being and I messed up and I'm sorry. So that they can see early on a model of how do you apologize when you make a mistake? What, what do you do when your parents make a mistake? It doesn't end the world. It's just a thing that happens. Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I'm kind of excited to segue into the second letter because <laughs> I feel like um, we can use this to, to help somebody else out. Right. All right. So the subject here is, should I have kids I don't really want? Dear Prudence, what's the protocol for not really wanting kids, but deciding to have them because my wife really wants them? We've been married for several years and she's always wanted kids. I always thought I'd want kids eventually, but the future always felt so far away. Now we're 30 and she wants to start trying, but I'm unsure. As I reflect on all the different fantasies I've had about my future, I realize I never saw kids there. If my wife said she never wanted kids, I would be fine and we would just get dogs. We're getting older and we don't travel much. Our friends are having kids and we get hung over on two glasses of wine. My wife has hit COVID-level baby fever and has indicated that she wants to start trying right away. I know if I tell her I'm not sure I want kids, it will devastate her. I love her so much and know that not having children is a deal breaker for her. I just know that having kids is not a deal breaker for me. Dum, dum, dum. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as much as I wanted to like go easy on our first letter writer, I now want to like turn on the other tap and be like, that will be you. You will be miserable (laughs) 24-7. You will live for your daily run and you will feel exhausted and inadequate. Um, 
you know, I mean, like the, the guy in the first letter, like he has to be in this situation. So there's a degree to which my advice was like, you have to make the best of this. So here's what you do. But it's like, if you can avoid this situation, oh my goodness, I want you to. I I want people to be, tell the truth. <laughs> I, want, I want people to be honest with their partner. I think I think she would be devastated, right, to hear that he doesn't want kids. I think she would be more devastated to find out that the kids have arrived and <laughs> he's not here for it. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I definitely understand the fear of disappointing a partner. I definitely understand like, oh, it would make them so happy. Maybe I can just round my way up to it. But based on like that previous letter, everyone I've ever met who has a child, every other letter I get from parents, it's really not the kind of thing where you can have a kid and then sort of like tune out. That's right. Like it really is not. If you find it a little tricky to hide some of this from your partner right now when you spend a lot of your free time not talking about kids, I would invite you to imagine what it will feel like when you have a newborn that you just brought home and an exhausted wife who just went through nine months of pregnancy and you have to get up six times in the middle of the night to feed the baby. Like, does that seem like something you can either sort of like shrug off or round up or hope that her affection for the baby will carry you over the finish line? Right. I'm concerned, Danny. I'm concerned yeah. about this guy. <laughs> I, well, first of all, I love that we get to do this. And I also get frustrated that we can't ask follow-up questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because getting hungover on two glasses of wine would not suggest to me that you you can't be a parent. <laughs> oh, my read on that sentence was more like, well, like, we're not going to be partying like we did in our 20s, so we might as well have a kid now. That was what I was right. But I guess it could also be like, you know, if we're that big of a lightweight now, what happens if I have a glass of wine and then I have a toddler who throws up in the middle of the night? I'll be a wreck. I guess it could be that too. I think you're right because he also mentions that they're getting older and they don't travel much. So yes, I think your read is a good one. I mean, who is traveling much right now except for billionaires? It's true. (laughs) I'm super curious to know if the wife really wants kids because she really wants kids or if she really wants kids because she's bored. I mean, my read here was that some of the letter writers language was reflecting uh, a lack of curiosity. So the the bit about right. she has COVID level baby fever, that's contemptuous. You know, I mean, maybe jokingly she would refer to her desire that way. Like, oh, I've got really bad baby fever. But I bet if you just asked her to describe to another neutral party, what are your feelings about kids? She wouldn't just say like, oh man, I've got a fever for babies. It's like the pandemic. I think she would probably have something else to say. So that's part of why I also want this letter writer to really, really not just have kids for her sake is because I think part of him feels contempt about it or think it's a little silly or thinks it's just like some weird biological mechanism that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, your true conscious desires or preferences. She's just, her biological clock went off. She has the baby fever. It's not really her anymore. It's the fever of baby. Does that make sense? Do you think I'm reading too much into that? It. No, it totally does. And I think I think what struck me about that sentence is that, again, because I have a kid, 
parents right now are joking that if you already have a kid, you will not have another one during mm. COVID, right? That there's there's no such thing as baby fever during COVID if you already have a child, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, I just, I was really struck by that. Yeah. By his attributing so much of what she's feeling to COVID and the pandemic. Yeah, I, I just don't think there's any way out of this aside from saying something that you know will devastate your wife, which is that you're not sure that you want children. I, I yeah. think if I had a better answer for you, I would give it to you. The protocol is not just get her pregnant and hope for the best. I promise you that will go very, very badly. Um, and, and that's not even to say, like, tell her you're not sure and then she'll break up with you tomorrow and you'll get divorced. Like, you may very well tell her you're not sure and you two have a series of conversations kind of specifically dialing into what you're concerned about, what you want, what you don't want, and then you find something that works for the both of you. But um, I, I don't think you should feel too guilty because you say like, I kind of always figured I'd want them. And then when the time came to get specific and I thought more about it, I realized I felt differently. That's, you know, not everybody knows like permanently and perfectly how they feel about having children until things move from maybe someday to in the next nine months and then right. things get specific. I don't think the letter writer should beat himself up too much for realizing, oh, I have more reservations than I thought. But you do need to share them. That's right. And potentially not just share them with his partner, but to share them sort of like the advice we gave the first writer that it might be helpful to talk to other couples who don't have kids, other couples who do have kids, other couples who have young kids, other couples who weren't sure, maybe got pregnant by accident, if they're willing to share that, you know, but it, it might be help to really put a formal plan in place for talking about whether or not to move forward with having children. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the only other thing that I would add to that is the letter writer says, you know, when I think about different fantasies, I now realize kids weren't there. And not having kids isn't a deal breaker for me. Like, he's very reluctant to say anything um, active. And again, that, that may simply be true. You may simply be coming to a sense of, like, uncertainty rather than a sense of absolutely not. But I would encourage you, if you're going to have this difficult conversation with her, don't go in trying to downplay it because you're worried about how it might hurt her, obviously be tactful. Obviously pay attention to her feelings. Obviously, if she's hurt, give her time to respond or ask questions or communicate her feelings. But um, if it is in fact not, well, you know, if you said suddenly that you didn't want kids, that would be fine with me. Because like, she's not saying that. So don't, don't try to frame this as like, oh, I'm just super flexible if you ever change your mind. State it as, as I've been thinking about it, I've been realizing I'm actually a lot more on the fence than I realized that the idea of someday always seemed really far away. And now that it's close, I'm having second thoughts and get specific about things that worry you, even if you're worried that that'll hurt her. Because yeah. the alternative is not that you're going to be able to so successfully hide this that 30 years from now, you two will have had five wonderful kids. And you'll say like, surprise, I never really wanted them in the first place. And she'd be like, yeah. wow, you hid that so well. I'm so thrilled. Right. Um, <laughs> like, you know, there's no version of this that's not going to be hard at least one time. Um, so you you just have to do the hard thing first, and then you can get specific. Yeah, better now than later. And again, I, I think if the protocol is you two talk about this a lot, 
and you ask other people for their advice and experience and you get really specific about the things that you're worried about and you cannot arrive at a meaningful compromise um, as devastating as it might be to split up. I think it would be a lot worse to bring a child into the world that you didn't really want to have to parent resentfully and, you know, against your will or better judgment or real desires and to feel like I didn't have to do this. I could have just sucked it up and had a shitty breakup two years ago and then I wouldn't be like facing another 16 years of parenthood that I don't want to do. You can't really just mail them back. No, that's not how that works. (sighs) Unfortunately. (laughs) Um, Good luck. I would love to hear from you once you and your wife have had a devastating conversation or five. So please let us know how that's going. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. All right. We're, we're still in the family theme. In a little bit, we're going to get to other problems. But right now, we're still just in the thick of it. Family of origin issues. And uh, I think it's your turn to read this next letter. Here's the subject. Father playing favorites. Dear Prudence, I'm 24 years old, living with my mom and grandmother in Florida. My father lives in Texas with his wife and two toddlers. When my half-siblings were born, I heard about it from my aunt, not my father. Same when my grandfather died. We've always had a bad relationship. He left my mom when she was pregnant with me, claiming it was because her family didn't like him. My mom tries not to speak maliciously of him, but she says he always lied to make himself feel better. He used to guilt me for not visiting him when I was a kid, say awful things about my mother and grandmother, call me ungrateful, or pretend to cry when I wouldn't reciprocate his love. As an adult, I understand this isn't a healthy way for a father to treat his daughter. I've decided not to pursue a relationship with him. But since the pandemic started, he has been texting a lot, telling me my brother and sister ask about me, asking me to FaceTime him so they can see me and to visit in the future. Pre-pandemic, I made a three-day trip to Texas only to endure my father's constant remarks about how perfect his children's skin color is and how much they look like him which brought up a lot of hurt feelings. My parents are both darker skinned than I am. I want to be in my half-siblings' lives, but I don't see how, given their relative youth and my history with my father, how can I build a relationship with these two kids without continuing to get hurt myself? Do you see, Austin, a way to explore the possibility of some contact with the kids while keeping emotional contact with the dad at a minimum? Do you, do you think that that's possible? Potentially, and es- especially as the kids get older, right? There are just so many 
quite frankly, technological ways to avoid, you know, necessarily having to interact with dad and just have a relationship with the half siblings. Yeah, I um, I, I think it's really just a question of what the letter writer feels able to do. Um, yep. I, I guess I think I've been feeling so many estrangement questions lately that I think one of the things that I want to imagine or try to envision is the possibility of not making a decision one way or another about the future trajectory of a relationship, simply focusing on, am I going to say yes to this thing right now? Right. Um, so at least for right now, if you decide I'm not always going to accept my father's request to FaceTime, I'm not going to plan to go out to see them anytime soon, but neither am I saying I'm never going to see these kids. That I think is well within your abilities. And, and I also don't know that your father is going to force you to make a choice if, if that's the option you pursue. So like if right now you say, I can't plan any visits until the pandemic is over and just have that be your go-to line, which again, very reasonable. Very mm-hmm. reasonable, especially if you just want to stress like you're concerned about the kid's health. I think that's a a useful way to end that conversation. If it were me, if I were in this position and I felt like I do want to try to stay close with these kids, um, I want to minimize any contact I have with my father, including any attempts to tell him how much he has hurt me in the past or an attempt to get him to apologize because that really doesn't seem like something that he's at all interested in. My my way forward would be turn down something like 50% of his requests really casually and lightheartedly, just like, nope, not available today. I'll let you know when I am next week. And then when I was able to make those calls, talk to the kids and just kind of ignore if he was bringing up anything that was hurtful or personal, like I would just gray rocket, which is an expression sometimes uh, people use in uh, various advice giving contexts, which is just like give somebody who's kind of looking for a reaction, no response. Right, right. I think we all have to be responsible for setting the boundaries that we can set, right? And so if talking to dad first is sort of the prerequisite before the kids get on the phone, then maybe we keep that short and sweet. And maybe that's a very direct, are the kids around? Yeah. (laughs) You know, just to, you know, so that you don't have to say, I don't want to talk to you, right? But there are ways to segue into, here's the real reason that I called. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then if the idea of that, or if you give that a try and it's just really painful, if you're just overwhelmed by how much hurt you're still carrying based on the way that your father treated you when you were a child, which was not that long ago. You know, you're 24. It's not like your childhood was, you know, 10 years ago, you were still a minor looking for something for your dad or from something for your dad. So I also just want to acknowledge that. Um, That would make sense too. And if you needed to back off for a while, that would make a lot of sense to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I just want to say, all of the options available to you, you make sense to me. And if you felt like you couldn't deal with it, I don't think that that would be a sign that you didn't love those kids or that you didn't really care. Like mm-hmm. what your father has put you through sounds like pretty, pretty intense, pretty painful, pretty terrible, and also really hard now because it just sounds like he doesn't really acknowledge it. Right. And you get to both set those boundaries and you get to change them as mm-hmm. you feel need, the, the the need. So... You might decide once a week and then you might say, you know what, this is going down to once a month. (laughs) Or you might say that you need time or it might change based on your emotional state, but that 
you didn't create this situation. And so you don't need to take responsibility for navigating the situation. Right. And that that might include ignoring a lot of his texts or setting his texts to do not disturb or even telling Mm -hmm. him, you know, you text me way too much. I'll let you know when I can respond, but I'm not able to get on the horn like this. Like you, I think the thing that you know is that he will attempt to use guilt and emotional manipulation to get what he Mm -hmm. wants out of you. Mm -hmm. And if it's not possible for you to like put up walls such that that can't kind of get at you and you need to just say like, I'm going to block your number for a while. I think you should do that cheerfully. Um, I think you should try to remind yourself in those moments, this is what he does. It's not that I've suddenly done something so awful that he's truly brokenhearted. No matter how much I work to accommodate him, he always goes to tears. Why don't you love me? Feel bad for me in order to get what he wants. So to remind yourself, this is a tactic and not a genuine emotional response, not like a sign that I've actually wounded a grown man so much that he's crying. Um, That will help you keep things in perspective. And if part of what this means is you have a slightly distant relationship with some of your half-siblings, and you maybe get to know them a little bit better when they're teenagers or young adults, that's okay too. Yeah. I, I, I mean, part of me really wants to applaud this writer for at least being clear with herself that she's decided not to pursue a relationship with him. Because that can be a really difficult thing for a daughter to decide what the level of relationship she wants now that she's an adult. And to be so clear with herself is, I mean, that must have taken a lot of emotional labor on her part. Yeah. And it's just awful that you were put in that position of having to parent your parent in those moments. That's right. Um, I think the last thing that I would suggest is like, if you've periodically heard things through your aunt and this letter was originally longer and the letter writer mentioned that this was their paternal aunt. Mm. I wonder if you could also attempt in the future to communicate a little bit more through her than through him. Um, So if you're talking to her and you happen to mention like, hey, if you're talking to the kids later this week, tell them I say hi. Um, Right. You know, you won't be able to completely work around him, but that might sometimes help cut down on how often you need to go through him. And good luck. I'm really sorry. It's really hard. I mean, one of the things that's very difficult about partial or total estrangements is the way in which younger relatives often get either caught in the crossfire or those relationships fall apart because of the relationship of adults. And it's really painful. I don't have a great answer for it. I know that pain. I also have a young relative that I don't get to see because of a family estrangement. That's really difficult. Um, I get it. It's really hard. Yeah. But this next one, it's not, it's not fun, but it's a, it's a, at least a change of pace from like fraught family relationships. And it has more to do with just like, how do I dispose of someone's things? So I'm kind of (laughs) glad that we're moving out of really swampy emotional territory and into sort of just like, what do I do with all this stuff? Also, it's about a a roommate who has died. So again, I just really want to clarify. It's not fun. It's not lighthearted. Someone is dead. The subject is my bad roommate died. Dear Prudence, my roommate Alex skipped out on rent for May. It was a big blowout, complete with broken promises and Alex sneaking out of the apartment while I was at work. They blocked me on social media and on their phone. They left me in the lurch for over two grand, which wiped out my savings before I was able to get a new roommate. Alex also left behind a bunch of boxes of graphic novels and other stuff. I'd planned on selling those boxes to recoup my losses. I just found out that Alex died in the beginning of August in a car crash. I've never met their family, but I feel guilty selling these items now. What do I do? 
Okay, I'm going to be really honest here, Danny. Yeah. There's no way I would sell the items of someone who I knew had passed away suddenly when giving those items to family members is an option. Yeah. Would you do it and then also mention that Alex owed you $2,000? Or do you just feel like the fact that they died wipes out any consideration and you just either got to give it back or don't? <laughs> I mean, it's it sucks. $2,000 is $2,000. It is. It is. I I would maybe mention it. I... Mm-hmm. And and let the family do with that what they want, but I I I am maybe just superstitious enough to not want Alex to come back and haunt me. It's I I even don't even know that it would be like it has to be a superstitious feeling so much as just like this person just died tragically and young, right? Without ever getting the chance to atone for shitty things that they might have done. Um, but that we're not anywhere near on the scale of like, I hope you die in a car crash um, and and feeling like so I even like I just I mostly want to say this not because I think it's wrong to be superstitious. But in case the letter writer's not superstitious, I want right. to come up with another argument, which I think would just be like, I think you'd feel bad. Um, I, I worry that it would not be I don't know how expensive these graphic novels were, but it's very possible that you would only get like at most a couple hundred bucks for all the stuff. And so at that point, you would still be out the majority of $2,000. And then you would also have the sense of like, oh, I'll always wonder a little bit if their family like would have wanted those boxes or right. something. So I, I think it's 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 a painful situation. But I think if I were in your situation, what I would do would be I would contact them and say, I'm so sorry. I just heard about your loss. I have some of their things from when they moved out. If you would like them, please let me know. Um, right. And then give it a reasonable amount of time, like three or six months. And um, then maybe follow up. Because again, grieving families aren't always like really up on like, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, send That's right. Let me get back to that voicemail. Right. Yeah. And just offer again and then maybe reiterate like, I'm planning on donating the items at such and such a date. If you would like me to save anything for you, let me know. So give them more than one opportunity because they are grieving and this will not be at the top of their list. Right. I got to say, though, the idea of saying all that and then mentioning, by the way, Alex owed me $2,000, I couldn't, I could not bring myself to say that. Um, I just, I can't imagine that resulting in, hey, thanks for letting us know. Here's $2,000. Like, funerals are so expensive. Um, I'm sure they just spent a ton of money burying a child who died very young. I'm really sorry because you didn't do anything wrong here. Alex really fucked you over. And if Alex were alive, I would I would tell you, you know, like take him to small claims court, see if you can get some of that money back. Um, but I just think this is one of those things where through no fault of your own, something way worse happened to Alex. And I just don't think you're going to get $2,000 either from their family. I don't think you should ask. And I don't think that they're left behind junk is so valuable that you were going to make that money back either. I think you right. just have to say this absolutely sucks. And I'll just have to slowly build back up my savings account. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. I got nothing else. I just don't, I don't think you're going to get that money back. I know. I, I, I wish there was like another road that I could suggest yeah. going down, but I just. It's rough. It's rough when you're mad at someone who genuinely fucked you over and then they die because you feel like, well, now I feel guilty for being mad. 
And also now I can't go around talking about how mad I am because some people might say, but they died, but I'm still mad. And and that's just rough. And <laughs> I hope you have some good friends that you can talk to about this who will understand both that it's complicated and also that you're not saying like, because this person, you know, bailed on me, I'm glad that they died, like that they'll be able to hear you say some complicated feelings or some gallows humor right. without saying, oh my God, that's the same as calling up Alex's grieving mother and saying, give me my money. Your, your kid was a jerk. That's not what you're doing. Yeah, I think you should get in touch. I think you will feel better. I think 10 years from now, you will not. I agree. Uh, You'll not, you, you won't regret the decision of saying, here are items that you might want. Yeah, and I'm just really, really sorry. And I hope you find two grand on the street soon. Okay, that's it. I feel like I feel like we've explored the limitations uh, of that letter <laughs> and I've already made it clear that I've failed them in several ways. <laughs> It was so fabulous to have you on the show. Austin, thank you so, so much. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I totally respect, um, I mean, obviously I love and adore you, but I have a brand new appreciation for your ability to give advice because in so many instances, I was just like, my jaw was hanging open. I was like, I do not know what to tell you. I mean, the one nice thing about getting to pick the questions is I've gotten to think about them for a long time. And uh, and that's always, you know, I can stack the deck in my favor, but um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Austin, thank you so, so much. Have a fabulous rest of the day. It is my pleasure. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It's like a new level of rude because our phones do have an option called silence. Yeah, I just mean like, boy, that bar is low. If you are even in a virtual (laughs) therapy session with somebody else, don't be texting other people. Right? Ten minutes. if If you were, could you at least do it quietly? Like, could you pretend to be courteous? Mm, yeah. You should no. at least pretend to be courteous. That is ridiculous. It is not par for the course. It's especially weird that he apologized when his phone rang and then just went back to like loudly texting. <laughs> right. just, like, I'm just imagining somebody like in the theater apologizing for their phone ringing and then just like hauling out like an old little like <laughs> keyboard that's like on their lap and clacking away at it. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. 
To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.